Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you know, there are now several investigations into the catastrophic destruction of the Titan submersible, the loss of five lives, and investigations trying to figure out exactly what went wrong. However, this has also brought a lot of attention to extreme tourism and whether or not we are seeing a rise in this kind of adventure tourism. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Scott Smith, Associate Professor of Hospitality and Tourism Management at the University of South Carolina. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. We've been talking a lot about the various investigations that are now looking at the catastrophic failure of the the Titan submersible, but a lot of questions are now also being raised about adventure tourism, about regulation in that type of industry. I know you've written about this as well. What do you take away from, from what we've seen happen here? Well, first of all, of course, this is a, a, a human tragedy, and we we always uh, stop, take a minute to reflect upon, um, you know, what uh, <laughs> what is proper um, for tourism, and this is especially relevant now because as we continue to talk about going into space and space tourism, this brings up all kinds of questions of risk versus. Um, you know, the the payoff of having adventure tourism. And so this uh, this brings it into a focus. Now, you know, as I always say, there's risk in everything that you do. And even crossing the street, you know, there's, there's risk involved with that. But to at what point do we say that you no longer – um, have the the option of doing something that's that's a risky behavior for the sake of tourism um, certainly brings all kinds of questions to mind. Um, in this case, the and again the investigation is ongoing, so I'm not sure, but there's some talk about where the the proper safety procedures followed, or was this a um, was this a safe journey to take? And so we'll wait for the, the the findings to come out. But again, there's always going to be some risk, and this includes um, you may going to the theme park and riding a roller coaster, or, or going on safari, or, or climbing mountains. And um, we always have to look back and reflect and say, you know, in any incident that you know causes harm to people, um, was this. Was this proper or was this something that could be prevented? Right. And and like you said, there's a level of risk in everything we do, uh, even in our daily lives or when we're going maybe and, and seeking those adventures or those uh, adrenaline rushes. Uh, is it changing, do you think, mm-hmm. because we're, we're seeing more people and, and not that it's a huge group. I mean, you have to have 
a significant amount of money to be able to do something like space travel to go on a submersible to the Titanic. But is it is it that we're seeing perhaps more uh, extreme adventurers that this is getting more of a spotlight? I believe so. And again, we're at a, at a crossroads right now where there's quite a bit of adventure tourism that is available. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, space travel or um, extreme sports activities, um, we, <laughs> there's always the question of what, what is an undue risk? And when, when does, you know, a, a a regulating authority come in and say, look, this is too much or um, this is too risky versus, um, say, you know, the offset of what people are looking for in the adrenaline rush. Um, I think that there's going to be more questions asked going forward as people, um, you know, engage in this type of behavior. And I think this is a cautionary tale and, and many times um, people are going to start asking questions about safety procedures as opposed to just, you know, putting their money down and going, you know, in a submersible or going into space. Is it something, do you think, though, that we see that, I mean, for, for this uh, expedition, for anything like this, for, from what we understand, talking to other people who have done it as well, I mean, you are signing waiver after waiver, and the company is supposed to, anyway, tell you what the risks are and what you're getting into. I mean, there are always going to be some people who are going to sign those waivers and say, yep, that's okay, I know what the risks are, I still want to do this. I mean, if that's the case, and and if something goes com- completely wrong. Uh, If somebody has signed a waiver, I mean, do we need to regulate it? Or is the issue then, are you putting other people in danger if then there's a rescue mission or people have to come and try and save you? Right. Well, as you probably know, the majority of people who sign um, risk waivers don't read the entire thing. And, and, Many times, especially when we're talking about very technical trips, you know, in the space or in a submersible, the, the, the common person doesn't have the knowledge to be able to assess the proper risk. And so typically in, in waivers like that, they, they just maybe glance through them and sign them, and they don't have a real appreciation for the technical aspects of it. And so you could argue that they didn't, most people – don't have the background knowledge to to properly assess those risks, and that's typically when regulatory agents step in. But um, in in spite of that, there are going to be people, like you say, that seek out, you know, those unique experiences or the adrenaline rush, and um, really don't don't take a moment to consider what what's the worst that could happen. And and in society, we, we, you know, good and bad, we've done a very good job of, of protecting people and um, risk are typically very minimal in most situations. And I'm, I tend to, to look at theme parks as, you know, my area of expertise. And you look at the, the vast amount of people that, you know, experience a theme park every day and the, the number of incidents where someone is injured or, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, fatal accidents is so minuscule we get to the point where we just assume that everything is going to be safe and you know going on a roller coaster is not equivalent to you know riding a submersible down 
the Titanic, but in a lot of consumers' minds, they they kind of equate it the same way. Well, there are safety procedures in place, and these people know what they're doing. And so that's where, um, you know, we have a duty to to really talk about the the, the percentage of risk or, or what could happen um, and the differences, say, you know, in riding a roller coaster versus um, going up into space. Hmm. And just one other point I know that you mentioned as well in, in your writing is when we look at technology, that we've seen technology improve and change, and does it give people a false sense of safety? Um, many times, yes. And again, this goes back to what I was saying, is that we've done such a good job of, you know, over the, the, the last few decades of, of giving people more extreme experiences um, like I say, you know, higher, faster, taller roller coasters, um, and you don't see, you know, incidents of people getting injured in that. And so people just assume, well, you know, there's, the technology is in place to keep us safe. And so um, I, I, I feel comfortable in, in, you know, engaging these type of activities when there is a vast amount of difference between you know, the, the cutting edge, which, you know, I put it space travel and the, um, you know, the submersibles versus, say, um, you know, again, going to a theme park and riding a roller coaster. All right. Scott Smith, thank you so much for joining us uh, for talking more about this today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in now with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. We didn't think there was going to be a lot of news out of those two by-elections on the weekend. It turns out there is. A lot of news, a couple of awkward moments, lots to talk about. Yeah, so the Premier did his little victory lap yesterday in the middle of an otherwise uh, press conference actually to announce God, the things politicians will do, he shares the platform with a dog, for God's sake. You know, I mean, they'll do anything, right? But anyway, SPCA announcement, a lot of money for the SPCA, well-deserved. And pet lovers like me are going, oh, yeah, I'm not going to complain about that. But, of course, he gets questions on the by-election. So it's an awkward moment, and it's because of another news story. Um, you've got indigenous leaders in the province calling for the resignation of the Minister of Children and Family Development, Mitzi Dean, over that horrific case of abuse of two Indigenous children in foster care. One died, the other was tortured in Chilliwack. So that's the news, and you've got a press release, uh, which we all have, a news release uh, yesterday as he's talking to reporters, where the uh, Indigenous leaders in the province are saying enough is enough, the ministry's been promising to deal with this for decades. They still haven't, and calling for the minister to resign. Leading the call is Grand Chief Stuart Phillip of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. In the audience, as the Premier fields the question, Jill, is Joan Phillip, the new NDP MLA for Vancouver Mount Pleasant. And she is Grand Chief Stuart Phillip's wife. 
So the premier gets the question. He avoids the embarrassment. I can't think of this has ever happened before, that you've got a, the husband of an MLA calling for the resignation of a cabinet minister, but in this case, you do. Eby just ducks that sidesteps, but his answer on Mitzi Dean is he has every confidence in the minister. And, you know, uh, Simi, I went, or, uh, Jill, I went through and read the that release from Indigenous leaders yesterday, and I went, it's pretty hard to have confidence in that ministry because of the clear evidence in this case of neglect and turning a blind eye and failure. And the Indigenous leaders are right, Jill. In fact, they refer to the case of Savannah Hall, which was 20 years ago, this little three-year-old taken to Children's Hospital, dies. She was in foster care. In the wake of that, there were plenty of calls and plenty of promises to deal with this. And you look at what happened in Chilliwack and you go, how much has the ministry mended its ways? And do you think then, so, so what happens at this point? And I'm sure the yeah. Premier would like it to just go away when he says, I still have confidence in the minister. Yeah. But but you're right. When you look at the details of this case, it is horrifying what happened here. Yeah, and I think the Indigenous re- leaders have a point when they say, you know, Somebody needs to take frontline responsibility for this. It's not enough to say there's a process in place. There is a process in place. There's a child and youth representative. There'll be a report. But that's what we've been having all along. And, you know, you can understand their anger and frustration, particularly because this case is so awful. I mean, Grand Chief Stuart Phillips says when he read the details he almost threw up. He said he was nauseous, right? I I mean, that is actually one of the reactions. And so it's an awkward moment for the premier because, you know, his his Grand Chief Stuart Phillips' wife, she's a a strong-minded person in her own right. uh, She can speak for herself uh, on this one, though. I think, Jill, uh, the government has to hope that if Joan Phillip has strong opinions on this case or anything else where the government screwed up, she shares her opinions and confidence in the caucus room. She doesn't put out press releases like her husband just did. Right, and, and which seems to have been the case so far in that it yeah. wasn't Joan Phillip calling for the resignation nope. yesterday. In fact, I think she even said she looked forward in her new role as MLA. She looked forward to working with others uh, in, in sure. government. Yeah, she's a brand new MLA. And again, you know, I, I go over the record, Joan Phillip. I mean, she, as I say, is a a person of strong opinions in her own right. She has in the past been critical of the NDP government on environmental issues. She ran for the federal NDP, so you know she's qualified to be the party's candidate there, and she's not uh, simply a mouthpiece for her husband. Nobody thinks that. But it's still embarrassing in the sense that, as I say, Joe, I can't think of a case like this in the past where the premier is standing and taking questions about a call for the resignation of a minister, and the call, one of the calls, is coming from the husband of one of his MLAs. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting dynamic. And and again, it was, I mean, again, this is such a serious case, yeah. and, and the fact that he was standing on the stage, like you said, sharing the stage with Honey, one of the dogs, and, and trying to make what was supposed to be a very good yeah. news uh, yeah. announcement. 
Yeah, and politicians, uh, again, you know, they have to deal with this kind of stuff all the time. You can uh, craft a good news announcement, uh, but you also walk in and you have to take questions on everything else. And, uh, Joe, as you know, there were questions all over the map. I mean, uh, you covered this thing in your show yesterday. Uh, There are all kinds of other issues. There always are. And, And maybe... To segue into the other issue that EB dealt with yesterday, which is the fallout from the by-elections, the Premier chose not to kick BC United when it was down, and he quickly disposed of the speculation that uh, he'll call an early election. And there's an opportunity here. Uh, The opposition is in disarray. The NDP did very well in those two by-elections. Its polling numbers are still good. Uh, You think back to John Horgan in 2020, Horgan called an early election in those circumstances. So would David Eby do the same thing? Uh, He said no, right away, dismissed the idea right away. He said that he thinks that the government has to show results on its big four promises, public safety, housing availability, health care waiting lists and cost of living, and he thinks if he gets into partisan scrapping right now with the opposition, the public is going to have doubts about his determination to fix those problems. So that's his position. He's sticking to the idea that there's going to be an election as scheduled October the 19th, 2024, and hearing EB yesterday, I went... This guy is serious. He's, if he decides at some point to have a snap election, he's going to spend a lot of time explaining why he changed his mind because we've all got all of the voice clips where David Eby has said again and again, no new election. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be something uh, for sure. Uh, what are your thoughts then? You mentioned he didn't kick BC United when it was down, didn't do a, a great showing at the, the by-elections. Was it simply people still don't know what BC United is? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the candidate for the party formerly known as the BC Liberals out there uh, said, you know, the biggest response she got on the doorstep was, um, what's that? BC United? What's that? And Kevin Falcon kind of admitted it in the clip you're using on uh, NW this morning that uh, he says now that they expected the problem. And he said, clearly, there's a lot of confusion out there about the party name, and BC United is going to have to deal with that and a rebranding exercise. I will comment here that when Kevin Falcon explained the reason for the name change, when he was promoting it, he said the goal was to end confusion uh, among the electorate. Well, he's now saying, hey, there's a lot of confusion out there. Well, the name change so far, Jill, made it worse. (laughs) Everybody, you know, the interesting thing is you go in to vote, right, and you go, BC United, what's that? Uh, And then you go, well, I don't want to vote for the NDP. What else is there on the ballot? And you go, hey, BC Conservatives. Well, I know what that is. No, BC Conservatives haven't been decisive in many seats in British Columbia for many years, but they have been on the ballot for more than 100 years, and Pierre Polyev has made them a known quantity in BC because of the crowds he's drawing. So you can see why, you know, the the Conservatives had a good candidate in Langford, and they also had name recognition. So 
Falcon now has a double problem. His own party name, promoted by him, people go, what's that? And at the same time, they go in to vote and they go, well, I know what the conservatives are. There's a known quantity. So if I don't want the NDP, uh, maybe I'll vote for them. Yes, uh, still a lot of confusion. It's just shifted over to something else completely. Uh, Vaughn, thanks so much. Thanks, Jill. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there was a lot of optimism when the B.C. government appointed veteran mediator Vince Reddy to help resolve what is often described as a very challenging transit strike in the Fraser Valley. But there has been no resolution at this point. And now several groups are calling for one of those, saying that some of the most vulnerable residents are being very much negatively impacted. Natalia DeRos is with Senior Services Supervisor with Archway Community services and is joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Natalia, thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, thank you for having me, Jill. We, we talked about this even early on. Um, I remember talking to the mayor of Abbotsford and uh, expressing concerns there about, uh, well, the communities, but especially some of the more vulnerable in the community. Can you talk a little bit more about what has prompted you and your group to call for this resolution to the transit strike? Yes, absolutely. Um, Archway Community Services, um, we have 90 plus programs um, and we serve newcomers to Canada, um, family and youth, uh, people with disabilities, seniors, um, we have a food bank, etc. So we're quite uniquely positioned to see the impact. Um, we help about 20,000 people in Abbotsford per year, at least, many of whom are repeat uh, folks who use our services. Um, and so, you know, the staff hear daily accounts of folks being impacted, uh, whether it's not being able to get to a grocery store uh, for a senior, for example, or it's somebody who relies on the food bank, um, needs access to counseling, um, or just daily needs like getting to work um one of our uh, the supervisor of family and, and children she was pointing out um at, at a recent sort of staff meeting that a lot of the children aren't even going to school a lot of youth are missing school because there aren't enough school buses in, in district um and and parents aren't able to bring them to school so it's impacting people on a very um sort of very essential level and you went through the list there, and, and I understand, too, that people are trying to find other ways of getting places, but that's proving to be difficult and, in a lot of cases as well, very expensive. Exactly. You know, so many of the most vulnerable are really struggling with the cost of inflation. Um, food is is really hard for folks, and especially with the housing crisis as well. So if you are relying on transit, which is a lot cheaper than any other kinds of public or any kind of transportation, whether it's a private car or a taxi or an Uber, it's just not feasible. People are staying in or they're walking and then, you know, it takes a much longer time to get to their work or get to their school. And it's that's not always feasible either. So, yeah, we're, we're really seeing that impact. Uh, people are resilient and, and our staff do a lot of creative things to get people to places, whether it's virtual sessions, whether it's delivering food hampers. But it does take away from our time as well. And, and a lot of our energy and, and the kind of the funding is, you know, around these workarounds. And it's still not enough. 
Uh, do you think that people get the sense too, or get or are feeling that they've kind of been forgotten in that when Vince Reddy was appointed, I know there was a lot of optimism. If anybody is going to find common ground in a labor dispute, it's Vince Reddy. Mm-hmm. But here uh, we haven't heard anything and this uh, keeps getting kind of extended and it's unclear when or if there is going to be a resolution. Yeah, I, I definitely hear that. You know, I work with the senior population and there's definitely a sense of defeat and, and, and fatigue, um, you know, the, the sense that maybe it will never end. I mean, Archery is still hopeful that Vince Reddy will come to some sort of, you know, re- resolution. I mean, he only was just appointed a little while ago um, and I know he's asked for some more time. So we are still hopeful, but I think it's people have forgotten that maybe or a lot of people have forgotten that it's been three months already so people are exhausted and and kind of at their wits end already um and it's just important to make sure that the voices of the people that really rely on this public transportation for daily essential needs aren't forgotten do you think as well is it to the point where people would like government to step in or that looking at the hardship and what this is doing to people that perhaps there needs to be at least a conversation on whether or not this is an essential service I well I think that the you know archway's position is very much that we we feel responsibility to remind government that 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 they need to be an active um active role in this negotiation and this resolution. Um, the transportation has always had barriers. It's never been perfect, but I think the strike is really showing that it's, it is very essential to the daily needs of, of folks. Yeah. And so what do you see happening in the meantime, like like we've known or like we've heard now, Vince Reddy asking for a bit more time, uh, the two sides clearly not close together and not to, to downplay what, what they're calling for, what drivers say that they need to reach an agreement. But I mean, this obviously can't go on forever. What happens in the meantime? That's the question, honestly. Uh, we're concerned about the weather. Um, it is supposed to be quite a hot summer, and we're already seeing that forecast over the next weekend. And, you know, a lot of our folks, a lot of our seniors who are very vulnerable to extreme heat, I mean, I think uh, seniors and those with disabilities are the most impacted. Um, and the heat dome two years ago, you know, we, we lost, I think, 619 people just over those few days. So there is a concern now as we're going into the weather um, of, of extreme heat that that more people will be quite uh, impacted on a very on a very essential level like their 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 life and death kind of level yeah and and when you talked about some of the things too whether it's food hampers or getting to school mm-hmm. reaching those areas is it also different or or perhaps people don't quite get unless you're in the situation it was one thing to have the transit strike in metro vancouver which also was very difficult for a lot of people but things being more condensed th- there mm-hmm. might have been more solutions where we're talking about a really big physical area a, a big landmass when we're talking yeah. about getting around in the fraser valley Exactly. It is uniquely different. And the geography is such, we have a lot of mountain ranges. Um, Abbotsford, I think, is one of the biggest municipalities geographically. Um, and, and also folks need to get to Mission and Chilliwack as well. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is different, I think, in that case. And it's hard for staff as well to go those extra mileage, you know, like go that extra mile, which we're happy to do. Um, we are resilient and, and that's not really the focus of, of our um, call for action, so to speak. But it is that, you know, people are, are getting tired. Are you seeing kind of it bring out the best in people as well, though, in that are people volunteering or trying to help out? Yes, 
we definitely see that a lot of the staff will um, provide extra, go beyond the extra mile. And I have heard from folks who use their services that their neighbors will bring them to services or the, you know, somebody they know will offer a ride. So it, there is a bit of that community spirit, but it has also been three months. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, Natalia, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully there will be an update on this soon, but thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having us. We at Archway really appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, more competition is needed in Canada's grocery sector. That to keep food prices down and encourage new entrants into the industry. That just a bit of the findings, some of the findings in a much anticipated study. It was released earlier today from Canada's Competition Bureau. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Mike Von Massau, Associate Professor of Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts on this? It doesn't seem to be a huge surprise that more competition is needed when it comes to the grocery sector. What are your thoughts on that finding? Well, I think the first thing I'll say is that the Competition Bureau didn't say that retailers are contributing to food price inflation. They didn't find any wrongdoing. What they said was, on principle, we think that more competition would be a good thing and we would recommend finding ways to increase competition. So uh, they're, they're saying just not because there's an issue necessarily, but because we all know that competition is a good thing and having more participants, it, it might uh, bring prices down. Uh, so so is, it, is it a good idea to have more competition? Yes. Will it definitively bring food prices down? Not necessarily, and definitely not in the short run. Uh, They're just saying, well, perhaps we should try it. They don't have a definitive finding that lack of competition is causing a problem. Right, but it it would make sense, wouldn't it, if they talk about the the three kind of giants in the grocery landscape, Loblaws, Metro, uh, Sobeys, and and even looking at other players like Walmart or Costco, that if there is that concentration, it would make sense that uh, prices could potentially or could stay much higher. Uh, it, it Definitely. Because there's concentration, if there was collusion, that might lead to higher prices. The other other side of the coin to think about here is that one of the reasons we see companies get big is that it gives them buying power. And so uh, they can can buy more efficiently, they can uh, ship stuff more efficiently, and, and so some of those uh, some of that concentration may actually bring cost reductions. So overall, uh, I think uh, more competition is a good idea. Um, but as you say, uh, there are those five big players, and to a degree, they compete pretty intensely with each other to get us to come into the store. So I think I would agree more competition is a good thing, what I wouldn't say definitively is that it will bring food prices down. Right. Um, there was a, an interesting uh, suggestion or recommendation in this report as well that uh, I thought, so it says to establish a grocery innovation strategy with the aim to support the creation of new types of grocery businesses and specifically looking at grocers that sell online. Do you think that would have much of an impact? 
Well, I think, again, more competition is a good thing. I also think that if you look at the way technology is driving today, if, if we could go more online, we might be able to reduce overhead costs. So uh, we don't need to have as big as stores because we're now pulling a warehouse. We can stack food higher because we're pulling it out with uh, with uh, uh, conveyor belts or or uh, or forklifts. So so I think that some consolidation with technology on finding ways to reduce. Uh, the overhead costs of grocery distribu- grocery stores and distribution could be a way not only to bring more competition in, but to to bring more efficiencies in. Right? As an as an example, in many of our stores are picking groceries for online orders from within the store. That's not very efficient if you think we're paying someone twenty dollars an hour, eighteen dollars an hour to pull that. Uh, a fifty item order takes about an hour so that's adding to the cost of those groceries you know in some of these high-tech warehouses for online they can pick a 50 item order in just over two minutes hmm. and so so some of those sorts of efficiencies might be ways of driving cost out of the system and not only increasing competition Right, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we only have about a minute left, but I'm, I'm just curious, when you talk about the bigger players and the buying power, doesn't that make it more difficult? Here, this report is also saying that new independent grocers need to be encouraged, but how can they compete? Well, finding ways to, to bring them... You know, it, one, of the, one of the benefits that these big uh, grocers have is they become, their own gro- they, they become their own distribution network. They have their own distribution warehouses. So finding ways to, to provide uh, independent grocers with access to I- efficient distribution, whether it is uh, the Ontario Food Terminal here in Toronto or buying groups or like uh, in the telecoms business requiring... Uh, the big players to provide access to that infrastructure, finding ways to let smaller independents establish because that becomes difficult and buy efficiently uh, would would be helpful. All right. Interesting findings. And uh, like you said, nothing going to happen in the short term on this. Mike Von Massau, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, people living in the Lonzo encampment in Abbotsford were told the deadline was yesterday to leave the encampment and that vehicles and structures would be removed today. But there are many groups calling for the eviction to be halted. Joining me now is Ga Grant, BC Civil Liberties Association Staff Litigation Council. And Ga, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk a bit more about this. Good morning, Joe. Thank you for having me. What's the status at this point, or what have you been told as far as the eviction and where things stand right now? As I understand it right now, uh, what's being reported is that um, they've had uh, BC Housing has been uh, affecting this eviction on site, and it seems like most, if not all, people um, have uh, have left, uh, been forced to leave, uh, and they've fenced off the property. 
And your group, uh, BC Civil Liberties Association and some other groups as well, have come out asking the minister in charge of housing to stop the eviction of this particular camp in Abbotsford. Can you explain a little bit? Why why would you like to see this stopped? For sure. So decampments uh, where, you know, these kinds of forced evictions where there isn't sufficient um, shelter or housing options available for people. Um, it, it goes against constitutional rights. Uh, there's been cases on this uh, in the province, um, and it goes against human rights, uh, both domestically and internationally. And it's really concerning that we're continuing to see these government patterns of doing these evictions uh, when they know it's contrary to law. Um, in this case, uh, you know, we, we, we know from the public database of what kind of shelter and housing is available that there, there just isn't the spots right now to cover the people that were coming um, from the encampment. And the, despite what the province is saying that everyone's getting housing, um, I wish it were true, but unfortunately it's, it's just not possible. And he, uh, they haven't provided any more specific which housing um, because it, it, it's unfortunately not there. So um, that's why it's really concerning to see these kind of ongoing um, patterns and lack of transparency. I know one of the arguments, though, put forward is about the number of calls that Abbotsford police say they have been getting about or to the camp, that there have been at least 600 already this year. There were about 1,500 calls to the camp last year and raising, again, a lot of the same concerns. I think we've heard about other encampments, safety issues, and the fact that this this can't be something that goes on indefinitely. Well, certainly encampments are not the solution to a housing crisis. Um, that everyone deserves housing, actual housing, adequate housing. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of um, misconstrued, and it concerns me when we're just talking about people who are our friends, our neighbors. Um, are, many of them have disabilities. Many of them are being harmed by the toxic drug crisis, and they're being so heavily policed, not because they are actually you know criminals, but actually just because there's, I think, a lot of fear that there's like a stigma that's ingrained in our society that makes us feel afraid or threatened by people who are in poverty. Um, and who, you know, and, and drug use is, a, is a, actually a health concern for those people, and it's not um, necessarily putting other people at risk. So, um, you know, I've been down in two encampments, not in Abbotsford uh, specifically, because um, I'm here in Victoria, but I've met folks, and, um, you know, they're just people that are part of our community, and they just want compassion and support. Oh, and going back to what you were saying about uh, shelter space and housing for people who uh, were living at this camp, the, the housing minister did say that anybody that was there that uh, is being or is part of this eviction would be offered help, would be able to relocate to either a shelter or supportive housing space or would be offered rent supplements. Is it your your take on that, that that's not actually happening or there aren't enough spaces? Exactly. There aren't. There just aren't enough spaces to make that a reality. Um, it's unfortunate, but I've, you know, I've. I was on the ground after um, the evictions in uh, Vancouver in April, and you know they said that as well. And then we, the freedom of information requests come out that show that at the time of the eviction, the city and the province knew that there was there was one shelter bed available, despite what they were telling everyone. Oh, everyone's being offered housing, and I wish it was true. In every of the uh, court cases where this has, has been brought before the court and the government has said, yes, everyone's being offered um, housing when they actually looked at the spaces available and whether they were actually accessible to people, they found that it wasn't. So 
that's why uh, it's hard to believe um, when you actually can see what's available and um, they haven't actually provided any transparency or documents about where they're actually um, what they're actually offering to people. And in uh, interviews that I've seen uh, in, in the media, there's residents saying that they haven't been offered that housing. Right. Uh, what about some of the comments from the Abbotsford mayor? And again, uh, he was referencing what he called violence at the, the Lonzo Road camp, saying it was the most violent in the city. And I think that's why it's getting the attention that it's getting, that, that because of that, that was one of the reasons it needs to be shut down. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he was referencing to or the, the incidents with this camp, encampment um, specifically, but I think that it speaks to, you know, we can show when people have their basic needs met, when they have shelter, when they have access to health care, like in general in society, that people, the crime goes down. Um, people are just trying to make their, to survive on a daily basis and just trying to have their needs met. And, you know, if they don't have mental health supports, if they don't have the supports that they need, um, and, uh, for like evicting them to nowhere where they're just going to be on a different street corner or go find a different park to have a different encampment isn't actually going to solve the issue. Right. And, and going back to something you said then, is there an, another challenge that's going to be made? Or what about the argument that there are B.C. Supreme Court rulings that say you can't forcibly, you can't evict uh, people from camps like this when there simply are not the housing options available? Exactly. So we already have those cases. And this is an issue of the government not respecting the authorities that already exist. So it's it would be impossible for people who are, you know, just trying to make their daily needs met on a daily basis. They're they're trying to survive. Um, they can't. How do they have the resources and the ability to organize to take the government um, to court every single time they they do this um, when we already have the court saying that you can't do this? So this is a question of us, as I think, as a society and as a government having the political understanding that, yes, this, this is not the way, this is not legal, and this is not the way that we should be responding as a society to the fact that there's people in our community experiencing homelessness. All right, Ga Grant, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a controversial condo development is going ahead in the heart of Vancouver's historic Chinatown. The city's Development Permit Board voted unanimously yesterday to go ahead and greenlight the proposal for 105 Kiefer Street with a few conditions. This followed marathon meetings. Many people for the project and opposed all spoke to the Development Permit Board. But in the end, again, the green light was given to the proposal. Joining us now to talk talk a bit more about this is Vince Tao, a community organizer with the group Van Du. Vince, thank you so much for being with us. Mm, thanks so much for having me. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the approval of this building and with the conditions that come with that approval? I mean, it's an absolute travesty. Um, the conditions that were levied on the proposal were absolutely meaningless, cosmetic. They want to change like the glass on the building. Um, doesn't do anything to actually address what's direly needed in the neighborhood, which is social housing for all the residents of Chinatown downtown east side. Um, I, again, I can't, I can't say, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, this is an absolute travesty. Um, this is 10 years of democratic process. There's 10 years of, you know, outspoken opposition and resistance uh, swept away in one 
stroke by an unelected panel of city functionaries. Um, this is, I mean, I mean, it's, it's the end of a long line uh, of a hundred years. You know, it's been a hundred years uh, since the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, this is an you know ongoing pattern of exclusion, race exclusion of a you know struggling community, uh, Chinese Canadians in Chinatown. Uh, of course, this is the working class tenants of Chinatown who have come out uh, in droves over not just you know the last month, but again ten years to resist this project. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we had folks come out again, residents, seniors, working class folks from the neighborhood. There were over a hundred speakers, and one hundred of them spoke out against it. There is an absolute minority of people uh, that supported this project. And so, again, this is, I, I think, you know, this, this, this moment uh, should really, for, for everyone across Vancouver and B.C., you know, we should be questioning, why is this allowed to happen? Right? Why is this allowed to happen? That's 10 years, again, this is the city's own decisions, uh, 10 years of vocal public opposition against this project, again, swept away in one, in one moment, right? And all because Ryan Beatty was able to purchase his way uh, back into, you know, City Hall, by guy like buying a, a reversal of this 2017 decision, um, this is an, an like <laughs> like we are ruled by oligarchs. <laughs> There's a, people with money are allowed to reverse them. Well, hold process. on. Sorry, what do you mean that he bought the reversal? I mean, he challenged it in court, and there was a court ruling on it. Yes, no one should be allowed to turn these things around by being able to purchase their way again with lawyers all the way up to the Supreme Court, and all because what. Uh, one guy says, "Okay, this this is not the non-correct ruling." Um, that's ten years of people struggling to be heard in front of the way because one person, the you know the highest court in the stolen land, uh, decides otherwise, right? So I, I I would say that this is this is not a democracy, and we should be questioning again the legitimacy of of, of government leadership to allow this to happen, uh, and you know the, the so-called democracy that, that that they claim to uphold. Um, this this is you know I I I, I am speechless again uh, that this is allowed to happen but nonetheless I think that Chinatown downtown east side are undefeated we will continue to struggle uh, for social housing because what what is needed at that site and all across Vancouver right why yeah, why people, so much focus have, have, though on sorry. on this particular site and that I get what you're saying and it's been very controversial it's come to the board uh, as we just mentioned it it was the subject of a court challenge but I mean this is a site that is owned by a development a development company you, you had to know that there was very little chance that there was going to be a building with 100% social housing built at this site, uh, no matter how much people uh, said various groups, including yours, wanted that. So why so much focus on this site? Why not be looking at other sites and that need that everybody agrees there is a need for below market housing, for seniors housing, for social housing? Why not look for other solutions? Why is everybody so focused on this site? Well, I think that what's important about this site is that it's historic nature, right? It's, it's right at the center of Chinatown. It's next to the Sunset Garden next to the Chinese Workers Memorial, right? This is, you know, some would say in a neighborhood, a sacred site for Chinese Canadians in Chinatown and across Vancouver. Um, and another reason why, why this site is because people have put their effort into it, right? Again, this is not just me speaking. This is the Chinese residents. People actually have lived and toiled in Chinatown for years, right? Uh, been excluded from civic processes, uh, who have not been listened to by the people that they pay taxes to. And... They have chosen this site as a, you know, a, a beacon of people's hope and, and, and uh, like a central kind of, 
you know, an idée fixe, a, a place that people have, have been really thinking about and, and struggling for all these years. And of course, we would love to see social housing all across Vancouver, right? <laughs> but no one's offering it, right? Like the, the government isn't. Uh, and so this site, again, has been the concentration of, of a, a neighborhood, the soul of Chinatown, uh, for 10 years now. And so, yeah, I mean, this site is one where and people have struggled. The city itself has offered offered Ryan Beatty again. They tried to negotiate years ago uh, to do a land swap and to you know, purchase the site for you know above market price again, just so you know we could appease what is both not just a neighborhood need uh, for social housing, but a citywide need uh, for social housing. And again, on a site that is so sensitive and and people. And their, and their lives and their dreams in the site to realize it as a permanent home for the people uh, because people deserve it. You know, Chinatown, again, the working class there has toiled for years and decades uh, being excluded from civic process, excluded from, you know... You know the, uh, Vince, what about the, the legacy groups, though, the number of legacy groups that previously were opposed to this that all came on board and said, actually, we're in favor of this now? Yeah, I think it's quite ironic uh, that many of them actually years ago in 2020 17 uh, actually said that they didn't want 105 Kiefer Day, right? I'm not entirely sure what has happened over these last five years that they would again, you know, maybe step away and stop thinking about the residents that they, they claim to uh, care about and and completely reverse their, their opinion, right? Uh, and side with developer interests. I think, you know, I'm very curious as to how that happened. Uh, and I find it, quite, I find it quite disappointing, again, because the residents themselves came out on May 20, 26th or 25th, um, uh, in droves, again, 500 people came out and ratified their unanimous opposition to this project, right? Um, the residents have spoken. The people that, again, that these big organizations claim to speak for uh, do not like this project, and they know it, right? Uh, and so I think there's a big question here as, as well about who gets to speak for Chinatown. How does democratic process happen in Chinatown, right? Are we talking to, again, the people that own the businesses and people that own the land? Or are we talking about the people that actually rent and, and live and toil in Chinatown? When it comes to the latter, they, everyone knows no one wants this project at 105. This is Mornings with Simi. It is True Crime Tuesday, and it is time to check in with Nancy Hickst, senior crime reporter for Global News and also the host of Crime Beat. Nancy, good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Very well. How are you? I'm good today. Thank you. Well, I know we have a new episode dropping and so much going on. What can you tell us about this latest episode? You know, I've been uh, watching my social media posts this morning, and a lot of people are posting that like, this is a lot of people's worst fear. Uh, this episode is called A Minute and 41 Seconds of Terror. And basically, a central Alberta family arrived home from a long weekend away. And it was recent, like it was in 2021. Um, and they noticed something was just a little off as they pulled into their driveway. They didn't know exactly what was happening. So uh, it was a family. So the father went into the home and... He just made a shocking discovery. And so this podcast episode shares one man's harrowing brush with death. And, you know, that's really an understatement. What he went through was just really unbelievable. 
uh, and uh, not to, to give it away at all. But uh, like you said, so many people relating to this saying it's uh, one of their biggest fears. Do, do you find that people, when when they can relate that way, it just makes it, I don't know if it makes it scarier, but it also makes it more people kind of want to hear all of those details. Well, I think when people put themselves in this person's position, like it really could happen to anyone, you know, uh, you know, I, I, obviously I want you to listen, but I can tell you that there was a stranger in this person's home and, you know, he was confronted and it was a life and death situation. So suddenly he's in a fight for his life. And, you know, you think about it every time you go home, you just think that you're going to go in and everything's fine. But, you know, in this situation, he arrived home to just a, a just a crazy situation. And he's really lucky to be alive to tell this story. It's one of those things, too, where, again, like you said, people would say, oh, that's my worst fear. But you also don't expect that to happen, where as you, you hear about it, cases like this, thankfully, not all that often. But but even though it's a big fear for people, you really don't expect there to be a stranger in your house when you go home at the end of the day. No. And, you know, you take it a step further. You don't expect that there be a stranger in your home, but then you also don't expect that that stranger is going to attack you. So, you know, it just escalated very, very quickly. And for him, it felt like a bit of an eternity, like it just went on and on. But it was a minute and 41 seconds from start to finish. And uh, just an unbelievable story. And, you know, this is the first time that he's done, like he's spoken to a few reporters when it first happened, but only just to give a few quotes, you know, in print. So this is the first time he's done an actual full interview and, and allowed uh, me to record this interview. And, you know, I was talking to him this morning. It was hard for him to listen to back, you know, as mm. he's recounting it. So definitely um, just, a, just a crazy story of survival. Yeah. And and not really, relatively speaking, not a, a long amount or a lengthy amount of time. But I'm guessing for him, it felt like it went on for hours. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting because a lot of people who have been listening this morning have just said, you know, like, it's hard to, it is hard to put you, yourself in that position because you do expect that your home is kind of your safe spot, your sanctuary. So when you hear someone experiencing that, and I mean, so close to home, like this is just in a quiet rural area. Like this, you know what I mean? You do not expect that in a, in a rural, um, like he lived on an acreage. So it's pretty crazy. What was that like when you said he'd, he'd talked very briefly to other reporters and offered a few quotes, but when you were sitting there and realizing this was the first time he had really opened up and you were hearing these details that, that others hadn't heard, what was that like for you? Oh, I mean, we went back and forth for quite a while just to build a bit of a relationship and some trust because, you know, this was difficult for him to share. He's been, you know, he's been um, in counseling since this happened. This has been very, very difficult. But, you know, like with a lot of the families and victims that I talk to, there's something therapeutic about um, being heard, about sharing your experience, about uh, letting people know what you've gone through there there is some you know healing in that and uh you know i know that he experienced that even this morning listening back because he didn't get to listen to it until today either so um i definitely recommend uh you give it a listen if you have a chance all right what else uh, are you uh, working on these days 
Oh, I can. Uh, there was a, a podcast that we just released um, that's actually really relevant to uh, your audience because it's about a repeat sex offender who's actually living in your area. So um, that's the, the previous episode that was out two weeks ago. If anybody hasn't caught up yet, it's called The Horror That Keeps Lurking. Definitely recommend listening. I also recommend you checking out my social media to check out his photo so that uh, anyone should be aware of this person in their community. It's uh, an unbelievable story. Um, and, and it really highlights how, you know, this, there was a victim whose uh, story, a survivor whose story I shared in this podcast episode. And she was victimized nearly 20 years ago. But it, it, like, it doesn't end for her. Like the terror that she went through just continues over and over. And uh, this particular individual was accused of going AWOL at one point. Um, he is back at his halfway house, um, again, in your area. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely give that one a listen. Um, and it really shows that the stories that I'm covering here, they really affect, you know, a widespread audience. Um, so definitely check out Crime Beat if you haven't already. Yes, yeah, uh, stories like that too, when it, it does hit so much closer to home and, and unfortunately we hear those stories of people who, they didn't show up at their halfway house or were released even though they were deemed a high risk to reoffend. It uh, That is one of, I think, uh, the, the very frightening things. Uh, we talked a bit about the, the strange circumstances of the, the the issue that just dropped but more common I think unfortunately is those those dangers that could be right around the corner well this is an individual who police have called a high risk to reoffend um, he has reoffended several times and the parole board of Canada in their recent decision highlighted how he was recently um, accused of being caught going back into his halfway house with a race kit so here's somebody who is living in a halfway house. He's supposed to be abiding by conditions. And then he gets caught with all of the tools that he would need to offend again um, and assault and confine an individual. So I, I definitely recommend um, anyone, if, for anyone living anywhere, to be aware of these kind of individuals in your community, but specifically your audience. Um, this guy's in the community. So uh, have a listen and and check out my social media where I have a photo of him for sure. Yeah, and definitely that photo uh, I know was shared on your Facebook page uh, and on social media. That's also got to be uh, difficult, but also having a survivor share that story and, and making that step to, to make sure that information gets out there. She's incredible. Um, you know, I, th- this is, I shared her story uh, in more detail uh, previously in a previous episode of Crime Beat in a previous season. Um, but now to know the latest that she's gone through, like it just doesn't end. So there's a whole new story that uh, explains what she's just recently gone through as if the first uh, experience wasn't enough. So definitely give it a listen. And uh, yeah, I have new episodes every two weeks. So stay tuned for those as well. But um, really some compelling episodes for your uh, listeners to check out. All right. Uh, absolutely. A lot of listening to get done a little later today. <laughs> uh, Nancy, great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. 